of God's Word with you, I invite you to open up to our sermon text this morning in the letter of 1 John as we continue our series through this book, series titled, That You May Know You Have Eternal Life, a verse in 1 John which we will actually be looking at this morning as we study through God's Word. We'll be looking at verses uh, 6 through 13 this morning, but I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 5 as John ties all of these things together so beautifully as, as his thoughts run through this chapter as he continues to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we may have assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made God, has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that your people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray now as we come to your word, you would equip us, you would show us Christ, you would give to us greater measure of faith that we may know we have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. We've been going through the book of 1 John for a while now. I think this is the 20th sermon, I think, or so, that we have seen in this book. So by now, I'm sure you're quite familiar with what John has been doing as he takes us through step by step, uh, this teaching that he presents to us. Remember that John is giving to us 
several tests for us to compare ourselves to. He gives to us a test of faith. He, he asks you the question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I think that his hope is that you respond with an emphatic, yes, I believe. And that's one of those things that John wants you to do so that you know that you have eternal life. But he gives another test, a test of love, which we have seen throughout this entire book. We are to love our fellow Christians We're to love the people of God. We're to love God. And in loving God, we begin to love one another. This is the second test. John asks us, do you love the saints? And again, he hopes that you answer yes, and that that gives you more assurance. You see this work of the Spirit in your life, and you grow in your faith and your assurance in Christ. And he also gives us a test of obedience. He reminds us over and over again that Christian people are people who see the law of God and take delight in it. They realize that this is a good gift of God to us, and we want to obey it, and we want to follow God. We want to follow after Christ, doing those things which he did, following after him. And John says, do you obey? Knowing that we will say, well, yeah, a little bit, not perfectly, though. He says, that's good. Even a little obedience is good. It should give you assurance. But all of these things only give assurance if and when they direct your gaze back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that is the other thing that John does constantly through this epistle. He says, look to Christ. Do you have faith? You say yes, but not strong faith. He says, great, look to Christ. He says, do you have love? And you say, yes, a little bit, but I don't love as much as I should. He says, great, look to Christ. He says, do you have obedience? And you say, yes, but it's poor obedience. It's stumbling obedience. He says, great, look to Christ. His emphasis over and over again is to direct our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, examine yourself, compare yourself, and then direct your focus on the one in whom we have salvation, the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And in our text this morning, he does this once again. Last week we saw that John shows to us these these three tests or three characteristics of the Christian life. He he reminds us of the great victory we have in Christ. And then in doing that, in verse 5, he says, the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. He ties that together with testimony which God gives us to remind us that Jesus is the Son of God, to direct our focus to him so that we might have assurance in him. Our text this morning brings our focus back to Christ because in our text this morning, John tells us that God himself bears witness to who Christ is and what he's done through three testifiers. We should rest Receive and rest in this testimony and be rest assured that in Christ we have salvation. God himself bears witness to who Christ is and what he has done. When we should receive this testimony and rest assured that Christ is our salvation. We can divide this text up into two uh, main sections. We see first God's threefold testimony in the first four verses that we'll look at, verses 6 through 9. 
God gives a threefold testimony. And then in verses 10 through 13, we see that we should receive God's testimony. And in receiving God's testimony, we have assurance, confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. A threefold testimony and the belief of God's threefold testimony. So without any further ado, let's jump into this text and see what God teaches us about Christ, about this testimony he gives us so that we may have confidence in our Lord Jesus. God gives us a threefold testimony, verses 6 through through 9. We read this in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. John opens up this section, connecting it to to verse 5, speaking of believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He connects this, and he tells us who this testimony is about. There is one who came by water and blood. There is one who is the Son of God, the Christ of God. That is, the Lord Jesus. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Christ is the focus of this entire testimony. God doesn't say, I'm going to give you testimony of the truthfulness of the scripture here. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you testimony of the fact that I created all things. There's one specific thing that the Lord bears testimony to here specifically in this text, and that is the fact that Jesus is Christ, and he came, as John says, by water and blood. John wants to emphasize here the and. We'll get to what water and blood mean here, but first, he says that Christ came by water and blood. Now, you remember that John, throughout this, has been dealing with uh, doctrinal errors that false teachers had brought into the church these people who had left because they weren't really part of the church, uh, people who most scholars would say were some form of Gnostic heretics. Uh, We've gone over this several times throughout this series, but just to remind you, the Gnostics were heretics who claimed that uh, the spiritual realm is good and the material realm is bad. Simple enough. And so they would say, well, we can believe that Jesus is God. He's, He's spirit. And therefore, he's pure and good and righteous. But we can't believe that Jesus actually became a man and and took on a human nature because that's the material realm and that's bad. We can't stand that kind of idea. So John here seems to be dealing with these false teachers once again because there's apparently an issue where some people are saying, well, Jesus just came by the water. But John says, no, he came not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. We'll see what water means here in a moment, but the fact that these Gnostic teachers are claiming that he didn't come by the blood, I think, emphasizes to us that what they're saying is Christ may have appeared to men, but he didn't die for men. Christ couldn't have possibly been human, these false teachers say, so he couldn't have possibly died on the cross. So he couldn't have come by the blood. Essentially, they're saying there is no atonement for man. And John 
emphatically denies this false teaching. He says this is all wrong. Christ did come by the blood. Christ did die on the cross for our sins. The cross bears witness to the fact that Jesus is both God and man in the same way that the water bears witness that Christ is both man and God. These are objective witnesses, objective testifiers, the water and the blood. John says as well here, the Spirit is one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So he says that the Holy Spirit also testifies to who Christ is, what he has done, because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, the one who reveals truth to man, the one who comes to people when they hear the proclamation of the gospel and enlightens their minds and, and renews their, their wills so that they see who Christ is in all of his glory, so they recognize that this is indeed the, the Son of God, and they say, he died on the cross for me? Christ is not the Savior of men generally, but the Savior of me? When the Spirit does that, when he reveals that truth to men, they take hold of Christ by faith. They trust in him. They believe in him. John says the testimony of God is that Christ came, the God-man, the one who represented his people, who died on the cross for his people, and whom the Spirit through his sovereign work, shows men to be the Savior and then applies Christ's work to their lives. Christ came. This is the testimony of God. And then John tells us who these three testifiers are. Here we'll get to see kind of what John's talking about when he uses these terms, water and, and blood. They're objective witnesses. Verses 7 and 8 Water, blood, and spirit testify. We read here in verse 7 and 8, there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, there is a slight textual issue here that I think warrants some brief discussion. Maybe some of you grew up using a King James Bible. And as you look at this verse, you say, I think something's missing. There was something else it was in the Bible that I grew up with. In the King James Bible, verse 7, includes this phrase, that uh, there are three in heaven that bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. The reason we don't have that in our ESV Bible that we use here uh, for preaching is that it seems that this phrase was added at quite a late date. It's not contained in any of the oldest manuscripts or even a majority of the old manuscripts. It's a theological truth that we see throughout the entire New Testament that God is triune, that he is one God in three persons, that these three are one. But it seems that perhaps an overzealous scribe made a little footnote seeing Trinitarian language in this text, and there is because the text speaks of Christ and the Spirit and the Father. I think he made a note that said the triune God, the three in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit are one. And eventually that kind of got incorporated into the text. 
We don't lose anything by not having that phrase in here. Because as I said, the triune God is present here in this uh, passage that we're looking at this morning. But that's the reason why it, it's not contained here. Uh, it's not in the oldest text. And so to be careful not to add anything to Scripture, uh, the compilers, the translators of the ESV have, have left that out. But the truth remains that the triune God bears witness to who Christ is and what he's done through three witnesses, which we see in verse 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood all agree. The water and the blood are objective witnesses. Some would call the spirit a subjective witness. I'm not entirely certain that I like that uh, language of objective and subjective, but I I think it helps us to understand these things a little better. There are two times in Christ's life where he was very publicly and openly proclaimed to be the Messiah of God, the Son of God. One of those, the water, at Christ's baptism. And that's what John is referring to here when he talks about the water. He's talking about Christ's baptism. You remember in Mark chapter 1 or in Matthew chapter 3, during those accounts of Christ's baptism, what happened? As he was coming up out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the voice of the Father proclaims from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Christ's baptism showed that he was the Son of God when the Father openly and publicly proclaims, this is my Son, my anointed. Christ's baptism, he's showing that he is the representative for man, the covenant mediator. He's shown to be the Son of God. He's publicly proclaimed. The water testifies to you that this event in Christ's life says, this is the God-man who will save his people from their sins. And then the second witness is the blood. This, of course, is referring to the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, his atoning death. On our behalf. And this too was a very open and public witness of exactly who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was. You know that when Christ was crucified, as he committed his self into God's hands and breathed his last that many public signs occurred. The sky was darkened. There was an earthquake. The temple curtain was rent in two, torn from top to bottom. And this isn't your flimsy little bathroom curtain hanging on your shower. This is the temple curtain, thick, torn from top to bottom, an act that only God could have performed. This was enough of a public witness to cause a pagan Roman to look at Christ and say, surely this man is the Son of God. The blood of Christ proclaims openly, this is the Savior of man. At the cross, Christ is 
declared to be the God-man who saves his people from their sins. This is the second testifier. And the third witness, the third testifier, is the Spirit. The one who bears witness to our spirit that we are sons of God. The one who points us to Christ. The one who reveals to us the truth of what God has said in his word. The one who showed us this is the prophet, priest, and king of God. This is a sure and certain testimony. There are three. You remember in the Old Testament, it was on the basis of two or three witnesses that a matter would be determined. You had to have multiple witnesses. We have three witnesses. The matter is established because they all tell us the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the God-man, is the one who lived a perfect life on behalf of his people, is the one who went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for his people, is the one who died and rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ. And John says that those, though these Three things, the water, the blood, and the spirit all testify. This is ultimately the testimony of God himself. Verse 9, John says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. As the water and the blood and the spirit all agree, It proclaims to us, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Uh, John uses this phrase, if we receive the testimony of man. You remember that John multiple times throughout this epistle uh, uses that if in the sense of since. He's basically saying, if we receive the testimony of man, and we most definitely do, we see that in our courts all the time, if we receive it, We ought to receive the testimony of God. And we receive the testimony of men, don't we? We use witnesses to testify in court cases all the time. Uh, You can imagine a scenario where a store is robbed, and eventually a man is arrested, and witnesses from the store are brought in to identify him. They line up bunch of people on a wall and they say okay do you recognize the man and all three people who witnessed this robbery point to the same man and they say yep that's him i recognize him i recognize him anywhere well that's pretty reliable so they would take the man to court then they would bring in those witnesses again to say well this is what happened and that's the man i recognize him we can have a fair certainty when multiple human witnesses recognize a perpetrator in a crime. If we receive that testimony, how much more should we receive the testimony of God? Because here is the problem, if we can call it a problem, with man's testimony. Man is fallible, isn't he? You might have three people say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the guy who did the crime but you get enough people who look very similar altogether, and they might say, I actually am not sure. They all kind of look like the guy that I saw. 
Men are fallible. Uh, Men can be unreliable. Men can be downright corrupt sometimes and bear false witness. God would not have given us a commandment saying don't bear false witness if man was not inclined at times to bear false witness. But if we receive a man's testimony, how much more should we receive God's testimony? God who, who sees the hearts and minds of all men. God who takes note of everything that happens in this world that he's made. God who is infallible and always just and always true. If God has borne testimony that this is his son, we ought to receive it. We must believe it because God is the most reliable of all testifiers. And that leads into John's second main idea. If God is the one who testifies to all these things by the water, blood, and spirit, we are to believe God's testimony. We see that in verse 10 through verse 13. We see that in believing, we may have great assurance. Look at verse 10. We read there, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. John tells us that when you have faith in the Son of God, when you recognize who the Lord Jesus is and you trust in him, you rely upon him alone for your salvation, you have accepted this very testimony of God. You, you've believed what he said. You might say, I don't completely understand all this. I'm not sure that Everything that God has written in his word is clear to me, but I know this much. The Lord said that this Jesus is his son, and the Lord said that if I trust in him, I'll be saved, and so I do. And when you do that, you've received the testimony of God, and in doing so, you have eternal life because you have taking that testimony as your own testimony. Oftentimes, you you might be asked to share your your testimony. And what most of us think when we share our testimony is, I'm going to share the story of how I was converted to Christ. And that's part of it. But the testimony, which you're ultimately sharing when you talk about how you came to Christ, is Jesus is Christ. He is Lord He is my Savior. You yourself testify to this very truth because you have received it from God and you believe it. And this is important. It's necessary because if you deny God's testimony, you've done something very grievous. If you look at the second half of verse 10, John writes there, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. 
There's many people out there who will say, yeah, I think Jesus was a really good man, probably the best of men, but I don't know that he's the son of God. I don't know that he's the savior. And I say, I believe that he is the greatest teacher who's ever lived, or he is a fantastic prophet of God. But if they do not believe this testimony God has borne that this is God himself clothed in flesh, then they're saying God is a liar. They're denying reality. And an attempt to take hold or cling to what they want to believe is true concerning their lives, their own status before God, they make the situation worse for themselves. They deny that this is the truth of the world, that this is the way God has set up a system of salvation for man only through Christ. They deny reality and they deny the truthfulness of God. The only true God. The God in whom there is no deceit. No change, no shadow of turning. They say, I don't want to believe Christ is who God says he is. I can't possibly be the one who's mistaken. It's got to be God who's wrong. It's grievous sin and it's shows us shows us the necessity of believing this testimony of God. Would you go before a judge if you have if you're standing a trial, you've committed some crime, you're standing there, would you go up to the judge and say, "You're a liar?" No, to do so would be absolute foolishness, wouldn't it? You don't want to get on the judge's bad side. And yet, if you deny what God says about Christ, you are standing before the judge of all the earth who will certainly do right, who will certainly make a just judgment, and you're saying, you're a liar. I haven't done anything wrong. You caught me red-handed. It was right in the middle of the act, but I don't care. Dear people, have you received God's testimony Do you believe that Christ is exactly who God says he is in this world? If you don't, I implore you. Cry out to God for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you for calling him a liar. Ask him to give you faith. Ask him to work in your heart by the Holy Spirit. He loves to do so. He loves to save sinners. Why would you stand there and spit in the face of the one who has said, come to me? I will forgive you. Don't call God a liar. Believe in truth. Believe in reality. Believe the testimony which God has borne concerning his son. And if you do, the result is amazing. So we see in verses 11 and 12. 
John writes there, the result of believing God's testimony, eternal life. He writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something which I think is impossible for us to fathom right now in in our finiteness. We start thinking about eternity and eventually we get a headache. And we say, I kind of need to stop thinking about that. But imagine how much you love to spend time with your loved ones. How quickly the time flies when you're having wonderful fellowship with friends or family members, with with those in whom you delight. We who trust in Christ, the lover of our souls, will get to spend day after day and year after year, never separated from the one who loves us and whom we love. We will have eternal life with him, being able to praise him day in and day out with, without any barrier of, of sin or, or of our physical uh, or ailments or anything like that preventing us. We will be able to gaze upon Christ himself, rendering to him the praise he is so worthy to have, to live with our Savior, eternal life in Him. Perhaps we don't think about this enough. Perhaps we ought to think more about the glory of communion with Christ than we do. And we think about it pretty frequently as as we're studying the scriptures and as we see that topic come up in God's word. But do you think about communing with Christ every day as you spend time praying or spend time reading the word? Do you think about how this is a foretaste of the communion we have with him for eternity? It's glorious and I think it should stir us up even more praise and wonder and desire for even more communion that we will be with Christ. We're with him now as we've been united to him. As we come together as his people, as we praise him, we're with him, but in a fuller way. No longer looking through a glass, seeing dimly, but seeing his glory. This is a wonderful, wonderful result of believing, receiving God's testimony, of trusting in Christ. We have eternal life. We see here that there is eternal life only in Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is only in Christ that you may have this eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people claim 
that all religions lead to God. They say things like, well, it's like God's at the top of a mountain and there's several pathways that all get to the top of the mountain. And you just have to be faithful and do your thing and live your life the best you can. And if you do that, well, you'll eventually get to the top of the mountain. God says, that's wrong. He says, would you come to me? You must come by Christ. Enter in the narrow gate. Come by the narrow path. You must come by Christ. It is only through the one mediator that you may come to God, that you may have eternal life, that you may spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God. It is only through Christ. And in Christ, there is great hope and assurance and joy. Verse 13, that you may know. There is great assurance in believing the testimony of God. John writes in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John has written these things. The the epistle as a whole, the evidences of our salvation the truth of Christ more specifically. He's written all of these things because John wants Christian people to have assurance of eternal life. But also, God wants you to have assurance of eternal life. This is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit speaks through the words of John and saying, this is written so that you may know. Not that you can have a 90% certainty. Not so that you can be more certain than not, but that you may know you have eternal life. God says to you in his word, there is one mediator, Christ. He is the one who was baptized at Jordan River. He is the one who lived a perfect sinless life. He is the one who was crucified on the cross at Calvary. He's the one who was buried and three days later rose from the dead and who was ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. If you trust in him, rest assured that you have the promise of eternal life. Your sins have been forgiven In Christ. If you trust in him, you are united to him and you have life in him. Even as a branch has life and the root of a tree. God wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have confidence. We'll see why next week. So if you'd like to know why we should have confidence, come to evening worship next week. But the point is, God has given us this very strong threefold testimony that we might believe it, that we might rest upon Christ alone for salvation and in doing so, be confident in him. Are you confident in Christ? Many times we're not. Sin causes our assurance kind of ebb and flow. We sin those sins which beset us. 
We say, man, I thought I'd repented of this and it's come back. I thought maybe the the Spirit had, had freed me from this, but it's still there. Maybe, maybe I'm not saved. I'm not obeying God like I should. John says, believe the testimony that God has borne, that Christ forgives you of your sins. Confess that sin to him. Repent of it. There is great forgiveness in Christ. Maybe you don't have assurance because you think, well, I believe, but I don't believe very much. It's, it's weak faith. John says, the Lord has made great promises. And it's not actually about your faith. It's about the one in whom you have faith. The one to whom God testifies, Christ. The object of your faith. God says, come to me with weak faith. It's faith that I've given you by my spirit. And he encourages us when we have weak faith to To cry out with that man, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And who amongst us does not pray that prayer? You might not have great assurance, but God wants you to have assurance. He promises to you that if you trust Christ, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. He does not break his promises. His testimony is true and certain. Believe it, dear saints. When your faith is weak, go to the Lord Jesus and ask for more faith. When you sin, go to the Lord Jesus and ask for forgiveness. When you lack assurance, return to this word God has given you. Say, that's right. God bears witness that Christ is the Savior. I trust Christ. And I know that God will fulfill his promises. Believe God's testimony. It's a sure and certain testimony given to us that we might rest assured that Christ is our salvation. Believe, dear people, and rest assured that everyone who comes to Christ has eternal life and will not be cast out by their loving Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the testimony which you bear of Christ, that at his baptism you proclaimed him your Messiah, the Son of God, but at the cross you proclaimed him the only sacrifice, the only atonement for man, that in his resurrection you proclaimed him King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and by your Spirit you reveal all these things to us. Lord, reveal to us more of Christ. Give us a greater glimpse of his glory Give us stronger faith, Lord. Give us greater obedience. Give us assurance, not in our doings, not in our obedience or our faith or our love. Give us assurance in Christ. Oh, Lord, we cling to him. We know that he holds onto us, and no one can snatch us from your hand, from the hand of our Savior and our God. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust in you, Trust these things. Help us, O Lord, for Christ's sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.